Who can stand against us if our God is for us? Amen to that. Well, friends, as we come to the Word of God, um, please avail yourself of our little sermon outlines. If you're listening at home or watching from home, you can download this simply from our website. But if you've got it in front of you, grab a pen as well and see if you can fill in the blanks. That'll help you concentrate and it'll give you a useful little document to take home as a summary of our time together. Let me lead us in prayer. Gracious Father, thank you that you speak to us by your Holy Spirit as we listen to your word, the Bible. And we ask particularly tonight that you would, by your Spirit, help us to understand what true maturity is like and so that we would avoid worldliness. Open our eyes, Lord, to our sin. Help us to be truly mature, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill is a podcast by Christianity Today that examines the ministry of well-known preacher, author and church planter Mark Driscoll. Uh, You may not have heard of it or listened to it, but many of my minister friends, including most of the staff here at Jamboree, we have taken the time to have a listen. Now, it's a little bit of an air crash investigations kind of analysis of uh, what is an extraordinary crash of possibly the largest reformed complementarian evangelical English-speaking church in the United States. And it explores how a young Mark Driscoll grew this church from almost nothing. And then it traces the trajectory to what happened in 2014 when his ministry imploded. And along with it, many of the churches that had been planted under his leadership. Now, it's not a pleasant experience to listen to the failures of a fellow minister, but the lessons learned are very important for everybody who has chosen to become a pastor of God's flock. Well, last Thursday, I listened to the very final bonus episode, the epilogue, where journalist Mike Cosper went and travelled into Seattle, the home of Mars Hill, And he met some former leaders there and walked around some of the original church buildings. And one of those former leaders, Tim Smith, said this of his time with Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill. He said, There's such a thin line between godly ambition and unhinged delusions of grandeur. A thin line between evangelism and self-promotion and platform building. And time is what reveals it. There's a thin line between evangelism and self-promotion. Now, many great things happened from the ministry of Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll, but in the end, it was overshadowed by failure in leadership that caused great harm and damage to many people. And yet... Many people cheered him on as the place grew and grew and grew. They treated their leader like so many others in the world, elevating him to such a height that he defied accountability as he, as he got his critics off his bus and, as he famously said, ran over them. I've got to say I'm fairly wary of criticising other leaders, especially those who pastor God's flock, because I know that I personally have made so many of these mistakes in my time. And I have hurt others through my ministry. And this earlier comment rings true for me, that 
There is such a thin line between godly ambition and unhinged delusions of grandeur. Ouch. You know, I want our church to grow because when we grow in maturity and when new people become followers of Jesus, it brings glory to him. We want our church to grow for God's glory. And I've prayed for years, a fairly crazy prayer in many ways, that that one day Jamboree Village will be known as a Christian village. And that is because of the impact of the ministry of you in our church, as together our village, valley and region has known how to follow Jesus and why it matters. But with these outlandish prayers and and crazy visions for God's glory, there is a thin line between evangelism and self-promotion and platform building. And I'm sure that Mark and Mars Hill wanted things to grow because he wanted God's glory to grow. And yet somewhere in there, he and the leadership of his church got things very wrong. How can we in our church here at Jamboree make sure we don't make the same mistakes? How do we avoid a rise and a fall of Jamboree Anglican? Well, it turns out that the temptations faced by the Christians in Seattle, the home of Mars Hill, were not very different to the temptations faced by the Christians in Corinth, those who received the letter from Paul. The temptations Mars Hill felt were the things that Paul wrote about as he corresponded with this church in Corinth, this church that he himself planted a few years before that. And those words, he wrote, are in our Bible. And God is going to use those words right now to speak to us by his spirit. My prayer is that we will humbly hear his word and we will submit to his kind words that seek to help us love and serve each other as a as a truly loving church. Well, let's get underway. It starts chapter 3, verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. Paul tells the people in Corinth that he thought that they really needed to grow up. Now, when we tell someone to grow up, it's, it's a pretty hard rebuke, isn't it? Will you grow up? And I don't think that Paul wanted to try and insult them, but certainly he wanted to give them some hard words to shake them up and get them to change their behaviour and their attitudes. He basically tells them that he couldn't talk to them like he would spiritual people. And in fact, it's because they were worldly. In other words, because of that, he treated them like they were not following Jesus. Paul treated them like they weren't following Jesus. That's how bad they were. And he then goes on to say they're basically spiritual babies. They're infants in Christ, which is also a a crushing rebuke. And then in verse 2, he continues with that baby analogy. He says, I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger, and you still aren't ready. It reminds me when my kids were babies, and initially all they could do was just suck and drink. They couldn't chew at all. And a little bit later on, when it got to the right stage, we gave them some wheat bix that had been sort of mashed up and, and soggy and some bananas and other things like that. And eventually, they would learn how to bite things, even though they didn't actually have teeth at the time. But it wasn't until they were a bit older that they had that real food. 
Paul says that the church here in Corinth, they are like babies who haven't even had any mushed up wheat bix yet. They were too babyish to get bread or meat or anything heavier like that. Now, obviously, he's not talking literally about what they're eating. He's saying they are too immature as followers of Jesus to be hearing anything more than just the absolute basics of the faith. They can't move on from milk onto solids until they show they've got teeth and they show that they're ready to chew. But what was it about them that made Paul have this damning assessment of their immaturity? 3B. For you are still controlled by your sinful nature. He basically says that they're controlled by their sinful nature, or, or other translations call it the flesh. See, throughout Paul's teachings in the Bible, we often see two things in opposition to each other. We have the flesh, or the spiritual nature, oh, sorry, the, the, the sinful nature, the flesh, the sinful nature, or the spirit. We've got the flesh, the spirit, the flesh, or the spirit. The flesh, the sinful nature, describes what all humans are like by default. It's the natural way that we relate to God and the natural way we relate to each other. And to try and understand what it's like to have a life that follows the flesh, the sinful nature, Paul explains in another letter that he wrote to the church in Galatia. In chapter 5 he says, When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarrelling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties and other sins like these. I, I, let me tell you again, as I've told you before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. People who consistently follow their sinful nature will end up living lives of sin. Just like that list there. Sexually immoral, idolatrous, hostile, angry, divisive, drunk, just to mention a few of those. If your life is lived loving those things, then you are acting like you're not following God. You are acting like you're following the flesh, the, the sinful nature. You're acting like the rest of the world that doesn't know Jesus. And you can see how that as Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, if he looked at them and they were living like that, then that's why he'd tell them to grow up. <laughs> but out of that big long, big, long list, he, he just lists two in particular. He says to the church in Corinth, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, you are jealous of one another and you quarrel with each other. These are the big two. Their big sins were jealousy and quarrelling. These things bring division and destruction into a community that otherwise would be a community of trust. Let's have a look first at jealousy. Jealousy is what you feel when you see someone else have something that you want. In this context in Corinth, it seems that it's like what happens when someone else gets a leadership position that another person wanted. I wanted to be the leader, but they got that instead of me. And I'm not happy for them. I'm angry, I'm mad, I'm sad, I'm, I'm jealous. I'm not happy for the person that got appointed as leader. And I'm actually 
just quietly, deep down, angry at God that I didn't get that job. If the church is acting like this, you can see why it is that Paul tells them to grow up. But it's not just jealousy, it's quarrelling, it's fighting with each other. And in all of this, they're not acting in a loving way. That's the big problem. They're not a loving church. There's two other words from Galatians 5, dissension and division, and they're all connected with each other. This is the kind of behaviour that cares more for egos and personal achievement than for the good of the group. It's the kind of behaviour that's the opposite of what servant leadership looks like. It's the kind of thing we really shouldn't expect to see in the church amongst Christians. You know, we should be delighted when someone is raised up by God to lead. You know, even if we were keen on the role or we were keen of, for someone in our family or our tribe or our group or our clan or whatever to get that role, we, jealousy and quarrelling are not Christian behaviours. And that's what we see in the third bit of verse 3. Doesn't that prove you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? See, that's the problem. They're controlled by their sinful nature. They're not being controlled by the Spirit. No wonder he wants them to grow up. And this is how their behaviour looks. And it's something we've seen already as we've looked at 1 Corinthians. Verse 4, when one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, aren't you acting just like people of the world? You see, if they've got different factions and different leaders they're following, it's just like the world. They're following different leaders and factions. I mean, Paul doesn't even live in Corinth anymore. He set up the church, he left it, and he's popped in to say good day and write them a letter. But, but they still say, I am of Paul. I'm of the Paul faction. And this kind of behaviour is worldly. It's fleshly. It's following the sinful nature. I mean, it's kind of what we sort of expect to see in the Liberal Party or the Labour Party or the other political parties. It's not what we should expect to see in the church. But why is it bad? Well, verse 5 says, After all, who's Apollos? Who's Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believed the gospel, the good news. It's bad. Why? Because it completely misses the point of what gospel work's all about. How does Paul describe himself and Apollos? He says they are only servants. He is in a society that loves to make people sound impressive. And yet Paul says that he himself is unimpressive. He says, I am just a domestic servant. I'm just kind of like an unskilled labourer. Someone who just turns up and just gets told what to do and just does that stuff without needing to make any decisions to think about stuff. He's just the guy who who shovels the sand, who takes the stuff to the tip. He's a lowly servant. And that's because God is the one who is the skilled trading. And Paul just shovels sand or runs down to Bunnings to get some more nails. How do you reckon the Corinthians would cope with hearing this stuff? 
They'd be appalled. They're all on about egos and leadership and recognition and status and fame and glory. And Paul, here he comes, the original Christian minister hero, talking himself down so much. You can be sure that's going to rub them up the wrong way. I mean, I think we Aussies don't have quite as much of a problem with this. We are so egalitarian, we are so classless that we don't let anyone really take themselves too seriously. So we don't talk about the Honourable Anthony Albanese. We talk about Albo or ScoMo or whoever Oh, And we're the kind of people, we don't get in the back seat of the taxi and people usher us in. We sit in the front and say, G'day mate, how you going? Having a good night? And we're the kind of people who think we can walk right up to the Premier and say to him... What's happening with the flood relief? Why have you done such a dud job? Welcome to Australia. But still, we like to go up the ladder still. We like to be selected as leaders. And we like to have an influence over others, even if it's only through Instagram. How have you seen this happen in Christian circles? How have you seen pride or jealousy or factions happen in the church? Where have you seen this worldly thinking come amongst God's people? Do you take, to- take pride when you are asked to do something at the microphone? Do you get angry when someone else was asked instead of you? Do you get proud when someone asks you to become a leader? Do you get jealous when you miss out? Do you stop serving when you don't get proper recognition? And then do you form cliques with others who have also missed out? Do you try to work out ways to undermine others so that they fail and then you get selected? Now, I'd love to think that this never happens amongst Christians in the church and in Christian ministries. But in the 51 years I've been alive, I've been around the block enough times to know that it does. And the truth is, unchristian leadership is sad and ugly. And I speak as someone who has had all of those emotions myself at one time or another. And I speak as someone who has had to confess this sin to the Lord and to seek his forgiveness. It's not good. It's not good at all. And, in fact, it's worldly. And that is very serious. But it's also very stupid. And that's because all of this is not about us. Verse 5b. We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. We serve God. And what we do is encourage people to believe in God's good news. All, people, all Paul did to people was say, there's the truth. All he did was lead people to believe God's gospel and that's all they did. And when people believed God's gospel, they became a Christian and they were saved by God there and then. 
God did the light. Apollos and Paul, they just pointed people in the right direction. They were just traffic controllers pointing people to salvation. Because, verse 5c, each of us did the work the Lord gave us. Their job was simply to do the work that the Lord gave them to do. It's that simple. It's not something to take pride in. It's not something to be jealous or divisive about. They just did the job that God gave them. It's about as silly as taking credit for deciding to shift a pile of bricks into a trailer. Wow, your decision to shovel those bricks, that was inspired. Huh? I just did as I was told. I'm just the guy who shovels the dirt. But imagine if you said, well, I'm the new coordinator for resource transfer and I've just undertaken a major contract in relocating vital assets. Mate, you've just shoveled the sand because the bricky told you to, right? Yeah. It's a bit embarrassing. But that would just be so Corinthian to do that. They didn't stop to realise that God's the boss. He's the one who actually does the work. But there's a better example, which Paul tells them next. And it's all about gardening and farming. Verse 6. I planted the seed in your hearts, and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. I've got to tell you, I don't have a great track record with growing plants. Uh, it's only been in the past few years that I've been able to keep our indoor plants from dying an embarrassing death. Uh, and so with this extra courage, I've plucked up the, the, the confidence to go to Bunnings and to pot some seedlings in some self watering pots. Uh, they're herbs and so maybe they might work. I don't know. I do know that I've probably killed more coriander in my life than I've eaten. But after three weeks, it's looking promising. And I've got to say that if the miracle of Tate Place happens and I actually get the new tomato seedlings to produce red things, I will be telling the world there will be photos on Facebook. I'll be telling my friends about my achievement. And when you come over, you know I will take you right out the back and show you my tomatoes. But all I've done is just plant them and water them. I didn't create the amazing flavours and scents of the different herbs. I didn't create the subtle differences between parsley and sage and rosemary and thyme. I didn't mastermind the the amazing redness that comes from a fresh tomato or, or the bold green leaves of my basil or my mint. All I did was just buy a little seedling and then tip it out and put it in another pot and put some dirt around it and water it. I didn't even do the thing with the seed, however that works. And here I am, ready to run around my backyard like I've just bowled a hat trick. The thing is, God is the one who made the plants grow. It's all about God. He does the lot. Verse 7, it's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. Doesn't matter who stuck the seed in the soil. Doesn't matter who walks around with a hose. God is the one who takes that little tiny seed and makes it grow into a remarkable plant with those Remarkable smells and tastes and colours. 
And that is why it's silly for us to associate ourselves too much with one faction or another, with one leader or another. It's crazy to be focused on the, um, on the irrigation guy, you know. Wow, you know, I'm the guy who follows the hose, man. Yeah. It's like, really? God is the one who does the work. And if you think it's all about you, then you've completely missed the point. It's not all about you. And what's more, the more you look to the role of one person, the less you see of the team. Have a look at verse 8. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose and both will be rewarded for their own hard work. Whether you're picking the fruit or fertilising it, whether you're sowing it or you're selling it, you're all part of the same enterprise. Every part matters and every part works together for the same purpose. It reminds me when you're out fighting fires. It doesn't matter how good you are with a hose, you've got to have someone turn on the pumps. All of us need to be working together for the same purpose. And what's more, we're all going to be rewarded for our hard work. We're all going to be rewarded by God for working on his spiritual farm. Stop and think about that. God will reward us. When we sow the seeds, when we water the crops, God will reward us. Now, I don't think we talk much about rewards in heaven for believers. It's not something that pops up that often, although it does from time to time. Part of it, I think, is because we are so careful to make sure that we remember we are saved by faith. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace, not by what we do. You don't get to heaven by doing stuff. God's not going to go up there and look at your CV or your resume or check out your marks or look at your results and say, all right, good enough, in you come. He's not going to look at what you do in life and your relationships and your achievements and all the stuff that you can say, this is my creation. And he's not going to say, not so bad, in you come. You walk up there and you can say, he'll say, well, I'm not looking at any of that. doesn't rate. It's all about who you know. It's not what you've done. It's all about trusting in Jesus. It's not about your own record in life. But once you have been saved by God and you have that certainty for eternity, there is actually something to be said about reward. Now, what is the reward that you get in heaven? Well, we don't really know, but it seems likely that it's to do with seeing the people that you've served, seeing the people in heaven, that you've had some sort of contribution in getting them there. It's all about the joy of knowing that someone's there with you in heaven because you did something to the, to the planting and the watering of God's plants. You might have been the person who told them how to follow Jesus and why it matters. Or maybe you were the person who cooked the meal after church so that a whole lot of us could sit around for hours and talk about Jesus. Maybe you drove the bus to the youth camp on which the kid was saved. Maybe you landscaped our grounds and maintained them week by week so that people can enjoy them as they chat about following Jesus. Maybe you signed the checks or applied for the grants or cleaned the church 
or controlled the tech or painted the walls or, well, fill in the blanks. There's so many more things there I could list and you know them. Maybe you generously gave money so that others could be employed and equipped to evangelise and lead others. Our hard work will be rewarded by God because our hard work is not in vain. You won't miss out if you give your resources to growing God's plants. And in fact, the return on your investment will be out of this world. Well, let's have a look at our final verse today and we'll see now that it's all about the team. For we, verse 9, are both God's workers and you are God's field, you are God's building. Paul and Apollos were just workers in God's field and the field was the church. It's all being built by God and in the end it's all about God. It's not about the leader. It's not about your faction. It's all about God and that is how churches should be. It's how Christians should be because this is what being mature looks like. This church in Corinth were just still on the milk bottles. They needed to move into soggy wheat bicks at least and then eventually they might tuck down on a steak or a cob of corn or something. And part of them maturing is for them to stop the leadership cult and for them to see that it's all about Jesus. Friends, when we think about our little church here in Jamboree, there's been a bit of growth over the last few years and many of you have grown personally in the last few years as a part of that. Some of you have become followers of Jesus even in the last year or two. And what a joy that is. And together, as individuals and as a church, we have grown up more and more in our faith. We want to see this keep happening. And we pray that more and more people in our village, valley and region would know how to follow Jesus and why it matters. That's our vision. But we don't do that because we want Jamboree, Anglican, or its leaders, or our people to have the glory. We do that because we want God's field to grow for his glory. And we will work hard to grow his field. We'll invest our time and our money and our energy and our passion in this project. And we'll give up our comforts and we'll risk our safety to see Christ's church grow. And we will work hard to get more and more people to fill this church or any other Bible-believing church around the world. And that is so that Christ's church will grow for his glory. But it's really easy to get this wrong. Remember what that former leader of Mars Hill Church said? He said, there's such a thin line between godly ambition and unhinged delusions of grandeur. A thin line between evangelism and self-promotion and platform building. If we are to be mature Christians, then we will see leadership the way that God sees it. We will recognise that every member of the team is a labourer for the Lord. Every member of the team is a planter or a waterer for Jesus. And whether you're the person behind the microphone or any other person in our church, you, we, we're all part of God's eternal project. And as we keep working to grow God's plants, we ourselves will also grow in maturity as we see God as the one who grows the plant, not us. For 
It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow.